This is John O. Brennan, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and author of Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. And I cannot confirm or deny that I am talking to Trey Elling on Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Frank Figluzzi spent 25 years in the FBI, the last two of which were as the Assistant Director of Counterintelligence. Currently, he's a National Security Advisor for NBC and the author of the book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I am well. It's a time where we are focusing on a national crisis. So those of us who talk for a living on television and do national security commentary have been very busy, but I'm actually glad to take a break from that and talk with you, Trey, about a book that's important to me and I think relevant to the times we're living in. Yeah, no question about that, Frank. When and why did you decide to write this book? Well, what I've done here is something that I swore I would never do, which is I've written a book about the FBI and inserted parts of my career in it. So that tells you it took something of substance to trigger me to do something I thought I'd never do. And I spent the last four years, Trey, watching the organization that I love and dedicated 25 years to get bashed by the president of the United States, and more importantly, the reputation and public perception of the FBI be damaged. And that goes directly toward the success of the mission of the men and women of the FBI to protect the country. So what I've done is I've told the story about my 25 years in the FBI. I've told the story of how the FBI actually operates at an extremely high level of excellence, especially when the stakes matter the most. And I share with the reader the fact that they don't have to spend 25 years inside the FBI to glean the lessons on leadership and values preservation that I took 25 years to learn and absorb. I've distilled it down into seven simple principles. I call them the seven C's. The book is called The FBI Way because there's an FBI way at looking at values-based leadership. And I think values and leadership are needed more than ever before in our country. That's why I wrote this book. The seven C's are code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. We're going to go through all seven now, starting with code. What are the most crucial elements of the FBI's code of conduct? So when I refer to code, I mean the conduct by which you decide you, your family, your community, your company, your country needs to act and live by in order to preserve what matters most. It requires going through an exercise that many people, many companies have not gone through or haven't gone through for a very long time. And that is asking yourself the hard question, what are the core values that must be preserved for our mission to be accomplished? Whether it's a married couple or whether it's an entire country or a global Fortune 10 corporation, I'm finding that people haven't gone through that exercise. So the first chapter is dedicated to identifying your core values and then coming up with and articulating a code for everybody around you that says, 
Here's how we conduct ourselves. Here's what is crossing the line for us. Here's what we can never do or allow to happen. And that code really begins with the FBI investing quite a bit in training and background checks before somebody officially enters the bureau. What does the training consist of that ensures that you are bringing the right people aboard into that organization? Well, it's a great point because, you know, the phrase garbage in, garbage out can apply here. One of the reasons the FBI does operate at the highest level of excellence is because of the incredible energy and effort they spend in selecting the right people. They don't always get it right, but they spend more time and effort vetting the guy or gal who pours coffee in the FBI headquarters coffee shop than the nation does in selecting a president. So very often, Trey, I'm asked in the supermarket, on the street, hey, Frank, how could we have gotten this congressman in office? Who the heck allowed this elected official to get a security clearance? How did we end up with this senior level disaster? And I look at them and I go, you're making a mistake. You think that somehow elected officials get vetted in some kind of background investigation. And the reality is the only background investigation we have is the national vetting process that occurs when someone says, hey, I'd like to run for office. And all I'm saying is, We better spend more time and energy figuring out how to pick people for office that don't pose a security threat to our nation. And if you're running a team, a company, a small business, you need to think about who you're letting in the door first. And then, as I describe in the book, start imprinting the code, your core values on those team members early on. It happens After the selection process at the FBI, it starts at day one at the FBI Academy, understanding that we're all a part of something greater than ourselves, and you're responsible for preserving the FBI's code from here on in. It was so fascinating to read your point about the limitations you have with regards to performing background checks on elected officials or those who are running for public office, but occasionally even doing that national search, you do come across a piece of information that could be harmful to the person, to the country, to the people of this great nation. For instance, there is an example that you cite involving a member of Congress. What exactly happened here? Yeah, there are stories in this book from actual cases in my career that illustrate each one of the seven C's, and it required the FBI in giving me approval for each and every one of these cases to do something they've never done before, which is to reveal some of the most sensitive counterintelligence work that I was involved in. One of those stories involves the fact that I had to confront a member, a sitting member of Congress who we knew was consorting with foreign intelligence officers, who we knew was being considered and characterized as an informant for a foreign intelligence service. I had to sit down across from that sitting member of Congress and tell him that we were on to him, that he was known as a source for an entire foreign intelligence service. So if people want to know, how does this happen? Does it take place? Is this only the thing of movies and fictional novels? The answer is it's for real. The threat is real. And we need to spend far more time vetting our candidates for office before we give them the right to represent us. 
the background check process for prospective agents is a very thorough one, and it does include a lie detector test. I spoke with John Brennan a few weeks back about his new memoir, about the lie detector test he had to go through in entering the CIA. You obviously had to get hooked up to that polygraph as well. Were there any uh, embarrassing or surprising admissions that you had to make to the guy administering the lie detector test to ensure that you didn't get caught lying? So, first of all, the FBI polygraph test is different than the CIA polygraph test. Really? How so? It's kind of a different approach to the polygraph. It's far more free-ranging with the CIA. They get into lifestyles and proclivities, and they, they want to know all of your vulnerabilities because rest assured, if you're assigned overseas, those vulnerabilities are going to be identified by an adversary. The FBI is, is similar, but they're looking for motivation, whether you've been applying to federal agencies because someone's pressed you to do it, some foreign service is asking you to do it, some affiliation that you're covering up is out there. So I think what the public needs to understand is that the men and women of the FBI at all levels and all roles inside the organization all undergo not only an entry level polygraph, but then every five years get re-polygraphed again. Imagine this kind of thing going on in police departments or your company or your business to ensure the highest level of integrity. People would run out of the room if you told them that they were subject to that kind of scrutiny. Yet the men and women of the FBI subject themselves to that because they believe the nation's premier law enforcement agency has to be at the highest level of integrity and performance. Let's get into that a little bit more with the second C, conservancy. First off, what does conservancy mean? Because that was not a word I was familiar with before reading this book. Yeah, when many people hear conservancy, they often think of a nature conservancy. You're trying to preserve maybe a natural state of a, a perhaps an endangered forest or endangered animals. Or there's also conservancy that takes place of estates and properties and valuable assets. But the concept is simple. It's you are responsible for caring for and preserving something greater than yourself. So in the FBI, integrity, ethics, excellence is a team sport. You walk into many major companies today, Trey, and ask them, hey, who's responsible for ethics and integrity in the company? And they'll point you down the hall to legal or to an ethics office, or human resources, or they'll shrug their shoulders. But in the FBI, the answer is very simple. It's every single employee. And yes, of course, there are internal structures of internal affairs and professional responsibility offices and audit staffs. Yes. But from day one, FBI employees are taught, you are the ambassador for the FBI you are responsible for preserving our core values. It stops and ends with you. And I found that to be a unique characteristic of the FBI. That's why I shared it in the book. And that's why I recommend it as a method of teaching your team members to be part of the ethics and preservation of core values. Don't leave it to someone else to do. And holding the entire team accountable includes every member of the bureau, leadership included, going through an inspection or an audit every couple of years. Just why is it so crucial that leaders are subjected to these similar sorts of audits as uh, those that they are in charge of? So here's the important part of that aspect of the chapter conservancy, which is 
The FBI goes a step further and says, not only are all of us held to the highest standards and all of us are conservators of the values of the organization, but guess what? The higher you go in leadership rank, the more strictly you're going to be held accountable for adhering to those standards. So the disciplinary consequences get much higher the higher up you go in the FBI. And so people say, well, there's a double standard. You better believe there's a double standard. If you hit the senior executive ranks in the FBI, you're out the door for violating the standards where perhaps a lower level, younger employee would be allowed to rehabilitate and get it right the next time. Imagine that concept of stricter adherence and and stricter accountability for senior leadership being applied to our most senior levels of government, right? And look at what we've been through in this nation the last four years, where we even have a Department of Justice memo that says, eh, you really shouldn't indict a sitting president. The FBI looks at it differently. If you're the senior most person, you bear the most responsibility for failures in ethics or morals. Yeah, it's not only talking the talk, it's walking the walk as well. And that holds them that much more accountable by doing those sorts of things. Now, conservancy is not only a sacrifice, it also means having to subject yourself to some pretty awful things from time to time. Is there anything especially terrible that comes to mind for you when thinking about this in your FBI career? Look, conservancy in the FBI is about sacrifice because, you know, you're held responsible for even your so-called off-duty conduct. In fact, the FBI says you're really never off-duty. So you go sideways at a backyard barbecue in the neighborhood, you get into it with a neighbor, you act unprofessionally, and the FBI is going to govern that conduct even though you think you weren't at work at the time. But conservancy also sometimes demands the ultimate sacrifice, which is sometimes... FBI agents lose their lives in the course of their duties, become the ultimate conservators of the nation's values. And sadly, throughout my career, I've worked with and known agents who were killed in violent interactions with adversaries, some of the finest people you'll ever want to meet. And in fact, one of my classmates from way back at the FBI Academy in my earliest days of the Bureau a guy by the name of Barry Bush, later on, many years later, was chasing a violent team of bank robbers and ended up being shot to death. Those are the days when everybody stops what they're doing and takes a moment to understand the ultimate sacrifice that's paid when you are a conservator of the nation's security and values. The third C is clarity. You write that there are obvious lines or bright lines that'll get an agent fired if crossed. What are some examples of these bright lines? Well, the brightest line of all in the FBI, and when we say bright lines, Trey, it's important to understand that means that line that you can't cross, that line in your relationship, your small business, your little league team that you're coaching, or that Fortune 500 company you're the CEO of that represents the no-go zone. And for the FBI, that no-go zone, that brightest line of all, is lying under oath. Here's why. Once an FBI employee has been found to have lied under oath, they are essentially worthless to the organization. You can't put an FBI employee on the witness stand in a criminal investigation 
and expect them to speak truthfully and be believed credibly if in some internal investigation they lied to the internal investigator. So whether it's a chocolate bar that's missing from the break room or some padding of expense account or travel expense voucher, you're under oath when that administrative inquiry occurs. And if it's found that you lied, you are out the door because you have crossed the brightest line of all, which is you've lacked veracity and truth. Yeah. Once the trustworthiness of an individual is compromised, everything else is dead on rights. Clarity is more difficult to decipher in chaotic situations. Who are the black Hebrew Israelites and why do they provide a good illustration of this? Look, our nation's been going through a lot of questioning right now. Literally, people aren't understanding which way is up, what is truth, what is fiction. We've got people wondering if there was a valid election for the president or not. We've got people wondering if the COVID vaccine is going to implant a chip in us or not. The truth has suffered miserably, and there's a lack of clarity in our nation right now. What I message in the book is that When you're under stress and chaos, you need to insert clarity. And the best way to insert clarity is to keep doing what you've been doing. Seek the truth. Continue on your mission. And I give one example of where the FBI brought clarity to chaos. And that is an organization that was called the Black Hebrew Israelites. They were a violent domestic terror group based in places like New Orleans and Miami and Atlanta, And one of the reasons people thought they might be heroes was because they were cleaning up neighborhoods and violent parts of cities. But the bad news was they were cleaning those cities up because they were killing people. They were killing people, beheading people. Their leader, Yulon Mitchell, was sleeping with underage girls, molesting underage girls. People were working and killing for him. And We needed to bring clarity to those organizations. We needed to bring clarity to their members. We needed to bring clarity to the cities that thought these people were doing some good. And I had the distinct privilege of arresting at gunpoint Hulan Mitchell's wife. Hulan Mitchell went by the name Yahweh Ben Yahweh, God, son of God. And I can tell people that I arrested at gunpoint the wife of the son of God as she attempted with her bodyguards to run me and my partner over in a parking garage in Atlanta, Georgia. So we arrested her at gunpoint and brought clarity to cities that had been victimized and mistaken by what the Black Hebrew Israelites were really all about. 9-11, on top of being one of, if not the biggest tragedy of most of our lifetimes, also provided a sort of information overload for America's intel gathering agencies How did you eventually figure out the best way to organize and gain clarity with all the information coming in in the days, weeks, and months after that? The FBI is perhaps the best I've ever seen in the world at handling massive volumes of intel and information in the middle of a crisis and making sense out of it. And some of the stories I tell and some of the methods I tell of how that happens in the book can apply to anyone's life, anyone that's under stress, any organization that thinks it's in chaos right now. And so many of us believe that and experience that because of the pandemic and what it's doing to our lives and our businesses. But in 9-11, Every single field office of the FBI closed down and worked one thing, 
what happened and who did it. And the evidence gathering that took place there was unprecedented. But here's the thing. I remember, as most people do, I remember exactly where I was that day on 9-11. I was at FBI Miami. I was in the number two position there as an assistant special agent in charge. And as the news came in and the information came from the flight manifests of those crashed and hijacked flights, we realized that 14 of the 19 hijackers had come from South Florida, right under our noses. And while the FBI can be proud of its investigative capabilities, telling you exactly what happened after it's happened, there was a wake-up call for the FBI in 9-11. And that wake-up call was, we needed to pivot. We needed to transform. We needed to become an agency that was engaged in predictive analysis, preventing the next act of terrorism, not just investigating it after it happened. Sometimes an investigation into a potential terrorist issue can lead to a bit of clarity that's more amusing than serious, like during the 2009 operation involving an Afghani immigrant. How so? The threat to bomb the New York subway system, about which entire books have been written. It's a fascinating plot that almost happened, actually had a sidestep into Ohio. So I tell the story in the book of this race to stop the bomb of the New York subway system by a terrorist cell based in both Denver, Colorado, Aurora, Colorado, actually, and New York City. But as the terrorist who was the leader of this cell was racing from Colorado to New York, to give the execute signal and make this happen. And they had their bombing devices ready to go in place, multiple packages, multiple people, ready to wreak havoc and death in New York City. As he was on his way, being followed by FBI surveillance across the country, he had to make a pit stop. He made a pit stop at a rest stop near Columbus, Ohio. And that's where an FBI surveillance team believes they saw him interact with and get into the car or someone get in his car that was unknown to us. And there was tremendous concern that we might have just identified an additional cell member or that something had changed hands or passed from one person to the other related to the terror event. And suddenly, since Ohio was my territory, this problem became my problem and my office's problem. And we raced to figure out who was driving the white van that pulled next to the terrorist and liaisoned at this rest stop for a matter of minutes before the terrorist vanished on his way to New York? Well, in the book, we find out that sometimes things happen at rest stops that aren't terrorist related, but rather might be liaison, interlude, and romance related. And we had to figure out and try to bring clarity to what in heaven's name had happened at that rest stop. You'll have to read that chapter of the book to learn more about that white van in Ohio. Good setup there. The fourth C is consequences. FBI leaders sometimes make decisions despite the consequences. What do you mean by this as articulated by a truly awful example from St. Louis in 1989? Yeah, look, it's easy to do the right thing when everybody agrees with you and when it's not going to be painful to do what's right. 
What the FBI employees are taught is that you need to do the right thing, especially when it's painful, especially when it could actually be against yourself for interest or organizational interest. And the example I give is actually related to one of the worst things I've ever heard audibly during my FBI career. You know, a lot of law enforcement officers are asked by people, hey, what's the worst thing you've seen in your career? I don't like that question. I think it causes people to relive things and to tell stories that people don't want to hear ultimately, and they regret asking the question. But for me, it wasn't so much the awful things that I've seen, which have been bad enough. But for me, it sometimes was the worst things that I had heard, the audible sounds of horrible things that humans are capable of. And I tell the story of listening to a surveillance tape, an electronic surveillance tape from inside the kitchen of a home in St. Louis, where Hamas terrorist cell members were residing. And one day, the linguist who was responsible for translating the intercepts out of that kitchen came into work, turned on the tape, and heard the previous day's murder of the daughter, the teenage daughter in that family, at the hands of her own father and mother in her own kitchen. It was a so-called honor killing because that young lady had the audacity to date a boy outside of her faith and to get herself a part-time job. So she was the victim of an honor killing at the hands of her own father and mother. And the sounds of that played out on an FBI surveillance tape. So here was the dilemma. Here's where doing the right thing sometimes can hurt you, but you need to do it anyway. The FBI obviously had a classified FISA court ordered microphone inside that house. If we revealed it to the police and told them there's just been a murder in your territory and here's the tape of it, we would destroy our Hamas terrorism investigation. There were other ways that this could have been done. Perhaps the tape could have been anonymously dropped off at the police. Perhaps the police could have received an anonymous tip, but it wouldn't have solved the case quickly and it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. So in jeopardizing our own terrorist investigation, we declassified that tape and handed it to the police department. It was the only right thing to do, even though it absolutely ended up compromising our terrorist investigation. The fifth C is one that I don't know if a lot of people who just think about the FBI necessarily attribute to the FBI, and that is compassion. How is compassion a part of the FBI way? Yeah, and again, I'm offering these seven C's because I believe you can apply them to your own life, your own leadership journey, and compassion has got to be a critical part of that because compassion has to go alongside consequences. If you're going to have a program in your life, in your business, that brings consequences to undesirable conduct, you better accompany that with compassion. Because if you've got a harsh approach to saying, this is how we're going to enforce our code of conduct, this is what's going to happen to people who violate our core values, you're not going to get complete buy-in. Your people will never truly adapt as their own your organization's core values, unless they can see the human element in the system, unless they can see that you're operating fairly and that decisions on discipline, decisions on how to treat people 
are done with compassion. So I give the story of one of the most agonizing decisions I had to make when I was a part of the FBI's internal affairs unit called the Office of Professional Responsibility. I had a young agent walk into my office and say, hey, boss, we've got a case coming internally. It's going to land on your desk. And it involves an agent who purchased heroin for his drug addict wife. And I looked up from my desk and I said, Trey, I said to the agent, well, that's going to be a dismissal. And the agent looked at me and said, I'm not so sure. And when we read the file, went through the investigation, which was exhaustive, we found an agent under the most severe stress you can possibly imagine with his young children, his drug addicted wife, numerous attempts, successful and unsuccessful to get her in and out of rehab. And we found a perfect storm of a day where he was called unexpectedly into the office on a major case. There was no one around to watch the kids. His wife was going through serious withdrawal and couldn't watch the kids. He had to head into the office and not let his team down on a major case, no one else available to help. And he did the unthinkable. He piled his wife and his two kids in the car and went into the inner city to find a fix of heroin for his wife. That should have been, in anyone's mind, a termination of an FBI agent. But instead, all of the extenuating circumstances and his honesty with us about what happened and his genuine mortification at his lot in life and his inability to seek help that he knew he needed and that was available from the Bureau caused us um, not to fire him, but rather to bring in the employee assistance program to assist that family and him. He did not get off the hook. He faced a heavy suspension without pay. He paid a price, but not the price that would have had him terminated and penniless as he was trying to deal with a crisis in his own household. That is incredible. The sixth C is credibility, as you very accurately define as a belief in the person and values he or she represents. You say that credibility requires transparent codification. What exactly is that? The FBI lives and dies by its credibility. When an FBI agent flashes his or her credentials at your front door asking for help. Maybe it's a kidnapping. Maybe it's a terrorist investigation. Maybe it's a background investigation of your neighbor. Whatever it is, if that citizen has to pause for a second because they doubt the credibility of the FBI and its personnel, then the FBI will fail at its mission at securing this country. So I talk about the need for credibility in all leaders, in all of us, at any level in this country. And credibility, let's be clear, is not about being perfect. This book does not claim the FBI is perfect in any way, but it claims that the FBI gets it right most of the time. And when it does not, it secures its credibility by admitting its mistakes, announcing what happened, and disclosing what it's going to do to make it right. And one of the stories that I tell about getting it right when you screw up and being transparent about it is the story of a guy by the name of Robert Philip Hansen, who was the worst, most damaging spy in the history of the FBI. And Robert Philip Hansen was my unit chief as a young supervisor at FBI headquarters. And he had been spying for the Russians for 10 years. Many years later in my career, I was driving to work on the Florida Turnpike when I heard on the radio that the FBI had arrested one of its own for espionage with the Russians. I had to pull my car over because it was a punch in the gut to understand that a man I worked for many years ago 
had been a spy for the Russians. The FBI didn't cover that up. The FBI didn't say, this isn't as bad as you think. The FBI came out and said, this is a disaster. We should never have hired this guy. We should have caught this guy earlier. He's done damage. He was actually found to be responsible for the death of 10 people who had worked for the United States while working for the Russians. He tipped them off to the Russians and they executed those people. I tell that story because not the FBI got it right, but the FBI got it right in dealing with their own failure. We all need to look at that and understand it's not about being perfect. It's about being passionate about getting it right. In working for him, did you ever come to realize that you were unknowingly complicit at times in your early days? I think all of us in that unit, all of us that had ever worked for Bob Hansen, went through some agonizing soul searching about every interaction we had with him. To say that he was eccentric and an odd person would be an understatement. And the psychological study of how he got to be who he was is fascinating. There's been movies and books written about that alone. But I'll say this, a light bulb went on one day, years later, when they caught Hansen and there was an after action investigation into everything and everyone that he ever came in contact with. And it was time for my interview in that investigation. And I realized then that Bob Hansen had given up to the Russians, one of my own successful Russian double agent operations back when I was a very young agent before he even knew who I was, before I even had worked for him, I had had a successful Russian double agent operation that came to a screeching halt one day without explanation. And the light bulb went on years later that Bob Hansen had given up my case among many others to the Russians and then hired me to work for him in his own unit at headquarters. Did that force you to go through the same wave of emotions that you did when you initially heard the story announced on that turnpike? Caused me to get very angry. I think people need to understand the toll that moral, ethical, and integrity lapses have on people around them. You're not just hurting yourself when you do something that violates the code you are doing harm to others. I was angry. There are many FBI agents who said they'd be happy to pull the lever on the electric chair on Robert Hansen. It was that sense of betrayal, Trey, not only of the nation, but of the organization that we dedicated our lives to. The final C, the seventh C, is consistency. You point out that the FBI has been able to achieve consistency because it empowers its employees to speak out, elevates leaders who live the core values, and instinctively defends against threats to those values. Now, consistency in decision-making in particular is crucial. Is there an FBI protocol for making decisions? Yeah, look, all FBI leaders are taught to go through decision trees in their head. And by that, I mean... If this, then that. The ability to see around corners, both literally if you're clearing a house with a gun in your hand, and figuratively if you're at an executive level deciding what to do next when you're under stress, that kind of ingrained thought process happens in FBI employees, particularly as they make their way up the leadership chain. But 
I'm here to say this and offer this, that consistency chapter, and I deliberately ended the book with this chapter, I believe is most needed by our country right now, because so many people, Trey, are asking the question, are we going to make it as a democracy? Is this fragile experiment called America going to look very different? Will it even survive? We're under unprecedented stress. And what I share in the chapter is the FBI deals with never before seen stress every single day. I was the on-scene commander of the first anthrax murder in the history of the United States. It was the American Media Building in Boca Raton, Florida. A man died from anthrax exposure. We'd never had that happen before. It was a deliberate package that was received and then received similar packages, of course, around the country. And we could have panicked. We could have said, oh my, we've never had an anthrax murder before. We've never had a three-story, 60,000 square foot building filled with microscopic deadly anthrax spores and had to do a hazardous materials crime scene with the evidence team inside that environment. There must be some other way of doing this. The rules must not apply. We've got to find some other solution. And what we did was we stopped and asked ourselves these questions. Have we done crime scenes before? Yes, we have. Are we the best at crime scenes in the world? Sure, we are. Have we done hazardous materials before? Yes. So is this not just a crime scene in a hazardous materials environment? Yes, it is. So the same rules will apply that have always applied to those searches and crime scenes, correct? That's true. So I say this to the country and to the readers. We're going to get through this if we simply go with and preserve consistently the values that got this nation here in the first place. The time to cling to your values, to cling to your rhythm of doing things the right way, to understand and stick with your core values as a person, as a nation, is when you're most under stress. That's when that's most needed. Don't abandon things just because things are different and never abandon hope because consistent core values will get you through just about anything. And we're going to get through this as a country. You make a fascinating point near the end of the chapter on consistency. As contradictory as it may seem on the surface, you say that consistency and change are joined at the hip. How so? Yeah, it would seem counterintuitive, right? Uh, So many people are change averse. How many of us have, have come to work one day and learned, you know, hey, um, we're moving divisions around. Uh, you've got a new boss. We're going to do this a different way. And, and nobody likes change. You know, we, we've the book, Who Moved My Cheese, has been a, a bestseller because people can't deal with change or see it as a positive. So how can I write a chapter about consistency and sticking with your battle rhythm of life and work, right? And having a consistent approach to, to, to leadership and living and then say, but you should embrace change. And here's, here's how I believe this. The FBI understood its mission in 9-11 and in the aftermath of 9-11. It, its mission was to be the counter-terrorist organization of the United States and to prevent acts of terrorism and preserve the national security. 9-11 said not that the FBI had to go away, not that the FBI had to change its mission, but rather had to change how it did its mission. 
how the FBI needed to change from an, merely an investigative organization into a predictive intelligence-driven organization. So consistency in your mission doesn't mean never changing how you do your mission. So it might be time on a national level, trying to draw the, the analogy to what, what we're experiencing in Washington right now, might be time to rethink how we select a president. It might be time to rethink how we do the electoral college. I don't have those kinds of political answers, but all I'm saying is democracy calls for us not to abandon the rule of law, the constitution, our three equal branches of government. But right now, what we're going through might cause us not to change the mission of democracy, but to change how we do it to make it better and stronger because we've learned some things that need to be addressed in order for us, order for us to remain on task, on mission as a democracy. Great book from the past year that brings up some ideas for how to alter democracy in a way that will benefit us all going forward. It's called The Politics Industry. Highly recommend that one. And on the subject of what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 5th, I'm assuming you, like all of us, were horrified by the scenes coming from D.C. that day. What do you hope the FBI's ultimate response is to all of this in terms of how they're helping out to ensure that something like this does not happen again? A great question. First of all, nothing gladdened my heart more on that horrible day than to see FBI tactical teams entering the Capitol building um, I, because I knew at that point that the professionals were in charge. Now, you talk about what we need to do moving forward. We can't address that question without understanding that that event at the Capitol was not a surprise. No one should have, in professional law enforcement or intelligence should have been surprised that that happened. So we have to ask ourselves, moving forward, how do we deal with what could become a permanent insurgency in our country? How do we deal with the fact that 74 million Americans looked at this president and said, he's my guy. I believe the untruths coming out of his mouth. I choose that over the nation and over preserving our form of democracy. How is it that thousands could storm the Capitol thinking that they were somehow going to do good by undermining our democratic processes? So law enforcement, including the FBI, has to get its act together, but has to do it with Congress because guess what? We still don't have a law on the books called domestic terrorism. If you change the scenario, Trey, and you, you, you have those people storming the Congress coming from the Islamic faith, Muslims, and they're doing it for some ideology related to jihad or creating a caliphate, and you've got a law to point to called international terrorism, and instead of trespassing charges, they're in prison for 20 years for terrorism. We have nothing analogous on the domestic terrorism side for our own people who are trying to undermine our democracy. It's time to give law enforcement the tools in its toolkit to get out in front of this, to be able to monitor the extreme violent chat rooms, the private um, websites, the, the private communications of violent people planning violence 
and to, to let them do it as if they were doing it with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Boko Haram. That's how we get a handle on, on what's not going to go away simply because this president leaves office. It's not a stretch to say that communication between different government agencies who gather intel has improved since 9-11, but is it where it needs to be in 2020? There's always ways to improve connecting the dots, right? That was the phrase we kept hearing after 9-11. We failed to connect the dots, and the, the finger pointing between the CIA and the FBI was um, both valid and extremely distracting. So I'm, I'm pleased to report that after 9-11, the people who do counterterrorism for the U.S. government sit under one roof at the counterterrorism center. They don't care which agency they're from. They're sitting elbow to elbow in cubicles in the same building, sharing everything. And our, I'm also pleased to report that our allies, more than ever before, were sharing intel with us from, the, from Brits to Canadians to Australians and on. But here's, here's the challenge. We've got a new threat. Uh, we, we've got multiple threats on the horizon, and, and I don't envy the Biden administration because the old the old enemies are still there. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, still there. But now we've got, on top of battling a virus, we've got the sophisticated threat of cyber. Let's not forget, we've witnessed a massive hack across our government by the Russian intelligence services. And let's not forget that now we have a domestic threat that the FBI director has testified is equal to or greater than the international terrorism threat. And he says much of that threat domestically is hate-based. We got to figure that out and how to counter that and how to de-radicalize our own population. So let's get our own house in order. Let's do everything we can to support an incoming administration as they deal with unprecedented threat pictures. Let's get it right. Let's apply what I call the seven C's of the FBI way to making this country work and come out of this stronger than before. Last question is going to be a little bit lighter than uh, some of the serious stuff that we've been talking about. You just mentioned that FBI and CIA analysts are working together cubicle by cubicle at the counterintelligence center and that's great to hear but uh, often in films and tv shows it is shown that fbi and cia field agents have a sort of natural rivalry is that natural rivalry still in existence amongst field agents between the fbi and cia i don't like to call it a rivalry what i see are separate but equal missions that sometimes come into conflict and sometimes it's because, let's look at the nature of the beast. Who signs up to be an FBI agent and what that mission of law enforcement looks like? And who signs up to be a CIA officer, clandestine collection officer, and what that mission looks like? And let me tell you this, there are rules upon rules upon rules for FBI agents as to how they conduct themselves as law enforcement and domestic intelligence gatherers. And we want those rules in place, right? We don't want spying on American citizens for the sake of spying and intelligence collection. But let's change that to the CIA mission and working abroad to spy on and collect intelligence on other nations and targets. And there are less rules about worrying about the civil liberties about Russian intelligence officers in Moscow than there are about American citizens in Omaha, 
right? So we've got different missions. We've got different types of people who self-select for the, those agencies. And when they come in conflict is often when the secrecy of, say, the CIA mission, the lack of regulation and rigor around what they do conflicts with the law enforcement, hey, I have to go to court with this mission, right? And it's a, it's a clash of cultures that occurs. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that the old rules have always applied, which is from, and what I found in my career is it comes down to relationships. Where I've worked best with the CIA is where I can point to a personal rapport and relationship that we've worked on mutually between that CIA officer and myself. If, if you can start at the relationship level, you often will avoid the, the mission conflict um, that can occur between the two agencies. Frank Figluzzi spent 25 years in the FBI, the last two of which were as the Assistant Director of Counterintelligence. Currently, he's a national security contributor for NBC and the author of the book we've been talking about today, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, thank you for the time today and thank you for this book. Thank you, Trey. Thanks for the chance and stay healthy. And thank you to you for listening today. A reminder that you can give us a follow on social media at BooksOnPod and check out all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.